Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. However, we have a leader from our local church community giving today's message. All right, you can be seated. Sorry, when you try to read the whole Bible, what usually trumps people is the book of Leviticus. But we know that Leviticus, without Leviticus, the cross wouldn't make any sense, which Paul will expound for us today. But before we do, let's practice the rule of life. We're going to spend just 30 seconds pausing everything to be still, to know that he is God. Amen? So let's bow our heads and just exhale and be still. All the ruminating, automatic thoughts that's weighing you down, bring it to the feet of the Lord. And you don't have to sacrifice a bull. Inhale the presence of God his transcending presence. Sarah Young, October 30th, Jesus Calling. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Heaven's bells continually peal with that promise of my presence. Some people never hear those bells because their minds are earthbound and their hearts are close to me. Others hear the bells only once or twice in their lifetimes, in rare moments of seeking me above all else. My desire is that my sheep hear my voice continually, for I am the ever-present shepherd. Quietness is the classroom where you learn to hear my voice. Beginners need a quiet place in order to still their minds. As you advance in this discipline, you gradually learn to carry the stillness with you wherever you go. When you step back into the mainstream of life, strain to hear those glorious bells. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. All God's people pray. Amen. Now, Paul. Hello. Oh, cool. Um, So, first slide. So, if you've been following the word studies, um, so blessed and shema, uh, we investigated the topic of blessing or being blessed and Shema. And so we define blessing as a foreshadowing of good, a vision of flourishing, a hope that originates from God. And to quickly recap, we covered uh, the following about both blessing. Blessings are primarily about what God is going to do through someone. And we find examples in the Bible of individuals and families who choose to pursue God's vision of flourishing by abiding in God and or apart from God. Um, Then we explored an aspect of how we abide in God through the practice of Shema and uh, the continuous process of hearing, reciting, meditation, and obeying the Word of God. So those were the sermons in the past. This is an add-on, next in the series, I don't know. Um, But when we step back, uh, when we consider what blessings and what Shema or hearing is really about, Um, we arrive at the conclusion that they're really about what it means to live in the presence of God. So what does it mean to live in the presence of God? And so today's passage, encoded in the language of rituals, is about living in the presence of God. Um, Living in a reality where 
God wants to bless us and draw near to the people of Israel, and God wants to invite those people into his presence. Uh, but in order to live amongst his people, in order to give them access to his presence, uh, God needs to address the sin of the Israelite people uh, because God is holy and we are not. Um, and in the biblical imagination, just a quick aside, the sin that separates humans from God is not just the moral failings of the Israelites. It's not just that I did wrong. It's also the after effects of sin. So the spread of death in the environment and in our bodies. So not only does my moral failing separate and break the relationship, there, it also pollutes the environment. So I guess that's where you say the relationship becomes toxic, right? And it's not just toxic for me and that person, it's toxic, toxic, okay, all right. Um, and so for lack of a better term, I'm gonna call that entropy. We're introducing entropy. Um, <laughs> so in order to deal with the problem of sin, God institutes rituals that demonstrate and teach us something about how he will enact his justice and mercy, his holiness and his love. So I'm gonna add a disclaimer, uh, or rather a reality check. Um, this sermon was extremely hard to write. Uh, <laughs> and it was hard because uh, I thought that if I'm going to explain theories of atonement, I have to do them justice. Um, I can't leave anyone uh, coming out of this room with you know, bad theology. And so I was stressing out, slogging through resource after resource, putting pressure on myself to be very thorough. Um, but yesterday afternoon, while still researching and writing, I came up, I came upon this quote, and it took off a lot of pressure. <laughs> so I'm gonna read it. So at the end of the day, we aren't saved by theories. We're saved by Jesus. Um, how that happens may be fun to discuss and theorize about, but only inside of the fact that it's the who that matters more, right? Um, so I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> so today's message is not going to earn you a seminary degree. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not going to explain substitution theory, propitiation, Christus Victor, scapegoat theory, all of, all of that. Um, what I am going to do is fill your mind with ritual imagination and language so that you can start drawing connections and revisit familiar stories through a, lens of, through a lens of ritual. And I hope that by doing so, you'll be drawn to the heart of God. That's my hope. So let's get into it. Next slide. So before we arrive at today's passage, uh, we're at the book of Exodus. Um, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness, a land associated with chaos and death. And at the end of Exodus, God instructs the Israelites to build a tabernacle, uh, a mobile temple that can be carried around with them. Uh, and the tabernacle is a physical manifestation. It's a local incarnation of God's heavenly dwelling place. And the tabernacle is situated at the very center of the Israelite camp. And so God fills this temple with his presence. Um, and by doing so, he stakes a claim on the earth. Um, an um, omnipresent God is choosing to uniquely locate himself with the Israelites. A holy God enters into the life of a sinful people to remind the world of Eden, a place where heaven and earth are one and where God and humans can live together as one. But being in the presence of God is dangerous. God is holy. 
God's holiness, his pure, powerful presence is both too good and too dangerous for unclean people to approach. Um, and it goes without saying that God doesn't want to just obliterate everyone that approaches him. Uh, so what's the dilemma? God, God's presence is at the center of the camp. He wants us to come near, but we can't go near to God as we are. So the story of Leviticus is concerned with answering the question, how do corrupt Israelites live near God's holiness without being destroyed? So when I spoke about blessing, um, we read in Genesis that God originates blessing, that blessings are about what God is going to do through someone and in relationship. But like the family of Abraham, we failed to Shema. Um, we failed to obey the promise of God. We chase after blessings ourselves um, apart from God. And so our moral failure and the spread of death drove us out of Eden. And no matter how blessed we are or how diligently we shema, we can't mend a broken relationship with God. We can't do it ourselves. And only God can do that. And so we'll see in today's text that God wants to create a way for us to enter into his presence. And for that, God gives Moses and Aaron instructions that we just read for offering sacrifices, and in particular, sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. So, next slide. Okay. So as folks living in the US, uh, or we don't really see ritual sacrifices, uh, we may be put off by the practice on varying levels, but the theme and the language of sacrifice is used all throughout the Bible. And so we can confidently say that the imagery and the language of ritual is supposed to teach us something. Um, and now covering all the types of sacrifices is an entire sermon series. So for today, I'm just gonna address a few core ideas um, and then get into the Day of Atonement. So we'll start with the invitation of God. The reason why offerings mean anything at all, why, why these sacrifices mean anything at all, is because God wants us to enter into his presence. If that wasn't the case, it, there's no point. Um, so without his invitation, we can't even begin to move forward. But to draw near, I must bring near an offering. And in some cases, that offering is an animal. And so Leviticus 1-2, we didn't read that, but it says, when any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering uh, from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance on your behalf for the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable on your behalf as atonement for you. So, God will accept an animal from the herd or from the flock that's unblemished or blameless. And surrendering the life of this, of this blameless animal will act as my substitute, my representative to go before God. Now, I'm the one having sinned, but God will accept this offering the death of an innocent representative as my representative. And through this animal and the surrendering of its life, I, through its total surrender, can enter into the presence of God. So those are just concepts that, I mean, yeah, we just need to understand. But um, before we let our minds just wander down the endless uh, hole of interpretation, one more point to mention about this animal. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives and on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. So it's not only that God accepts an unblemished animal on my behalf, on my stead, 
God is the one that actually provides the animal for this offering. So this entire process of approaching God's presence through the payment of a substitute life, we refer to this as atonement. All right, next slide. So we to, just to quickly recap, we've talked about how God shows up at the camp, right? Uh, shows up at the tabernacle, how ritual sacrifices are acceptable to make atonement for our sin and enable us to enter into God's presence. Um, now we're going to talk about a very specific ritual on a very specific day called the Day of Atonement. Um, the passage for today, Leviticus 16, comes from the middle of Leviticus at the center of the Torah, and it's describing the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. So something that you... Um, you may or may not realize is that this specific chapter is in the very center of five books, the Torah. So the first five books of the, um, the Hebrew Bible is essentially like this, this is the center of it. There, there's something that's supposed to be learned here because everything within the Torah points to this particular moment. Um, and so I hope that by talking about it and by giving us images from this particular slice two chapters of the Bible that we can, we can understand, better understand God's provision of ritual for us. So on the, day of, uh, on the Day of Atonement, a single offering, so I'm going to condense everything that we read because it, it's a lot. So, so a single offering consisting of two goats is made for the people of Israel. So he, I'm going to read this, Aaron the high priest, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Uh, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a purification offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So let's recap. So the high priest of Israel, and only the high priest, is taking two unblemished, blameless goats and casting lots. The first goat cast for Yahweh, it says it's being offered as a purification offering, but what is that? It's killed, and it's specifically bled. It's lifeblood poured into a cup, and that cup is taken into the tent and sprinkled on the atonement cover and on the altar. So it's killed first, but then it's also bled, and its blood is taken in before God. And by doing so, it says that it makes atonement for the holy place, cleaning away the entropy, the death that spreads by Israel's sin. He takes the second goat, cast for Azazel, confesses aloud all the sin of Israel and places them on the goat's head, symbolically placing the sins of Israel onto this goat. And this goat is taken out of the camp and exiled to the east, into the wilderness, out of the Lord's presence. So that's where we get, you know, uh, quotes like removing our transgressions and sending them as far as the east is from the west. Like, that, this, this is where this idea is from. So I said earlier that, um, so I guess just to backtrack a little bit, the purification part uh, is actually really important. Like I mentioned, the sin is not just moral failure, but it's also... The, the spread of decay and specifically death in the environment. And so it requires the blood, which represents the life of the animal, uh, but just life in general. That is what combats death. And so the sprinkling of blood 
representing life onto um, the tabernacle as well as the altar and all of those things represent life combating death. So that's one of the symbols that, um, that need to stick out but don't really stick out from a modern reading, so uh, keep that in mind. Now I said earlier that the themes in the language of sacrifice are used throughout the Bible. And one of my goals in this message is for you to revisit familiar stories with the lens of ritual. And so I want to quickly visit two examples, um, just two, that will hopefully inspire your imagination. So next slide. So I'm going to read uh, the story of Cain and Abel. It's really short. Um, Genesis 4.8. Now Cain said to his brother, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on this earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. If you've been following along in the sermon so far, you've probably picked on a couple of themes. One, the death of an innocent, blood, cursed ground, and exile east of Eden. Making the connections. And when you put it together, you get something like this. Abel, the first goat, unblemished and blameless, is killed and bled. His lifeblood is poured onto the ground. Cain's moral failure costs the life of his brother, but his sin also spread death into the environment and the ground will no longer yield its crops. Cain, the second goat, guilty of sin, remains alive and is exiled to the east out of the Lord's presence. So through the lens of ritual, you're able to go back to these other stories and see, wow, it's the same thing. Um, and so I'm going to give you another example of that. Next slide. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, Isaac. Um, so <laughs> uh, two goat brothers, again, <laughs> are born out of envy, rivalry, abuse by the parents. Abraham and his wife fail to trust in God's promise and pursue their own blessing. They end up producing two children out of their own envy. So Ishmael, representing Abraham's faithlessness and his mother are exiled to the east and their lives are spared. Isaac, the second born and chosen, is brought up to the mountain to the holy place to be offered as a sacrifice for Abraham's sin. But as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, God provides a substitute, a ram that dies in the place of Isaac. So the whole idea of this ritual that happens in Leviticus is it's supposed to frame the other stories, that through it you're able to see a deeper meaning as to what's happening within the narrative. Um, and so, next slide. And so what I want to do is uh, have you see goats. And you're probably seeing goats everywhere. And so if you're anything like me, you're firing, your brain's firing with a bunch of ideas. And so uh, what I want to leave you with are four categories um, to hang some of those ideas uh, that come from these two goats. So one, 
is God's justice, two is God's mercy, three is God's holiness, and four is God's promise. So the first one, God's justice. First, offering, a sac uh, offering sacrifices were a symbolic payment for the cost of sin, because sin is the destruction of good in life, and the wages of sin is death. So the first goat, the blameless representative, is a ransom for our sin. This also represents God's justice. God's mercy. Leviticus tells us that God provides the, sac uh, the sacrifice animal for our ransom, and through his provision um, of blameless life, we are shown mercy. The second goat takes away our sin, so that when God sees us, it isn't counted against us. And the second goat, despite its sin, is also spared. God's holiness. The purification rituals remind us that sin extends beyond our moral failure. failure. It spreads death into the environment. And so my sin not only fractures relationship, it also pollutes the space, space that belongs to God. And so the blood of the first goat representing life is sprinkled and poured out to clear the air to reclaim God's space. And four, God's promise. Lastly, animal sacrifices were intended to spur repentance and deter future sin. Why? Because you're literally, you know, in a position of surrender. But but it was never intended to be a permanent solution because these were supposed to be repeated acts. So the ritual of offerings on Day of Atonement were performed annually. And what this ritual is producing isn't new creation. We haven't restored human, humanity back to Eden. The animal sacrifices were a symbolic gift that pointed to something bigger that needed to happen permanent, to permanently deal with sin, um, to permanently deal with death. And so uh, if we go to the next slide. So the practice of these sacrifices happened for generations. Essentially, ever since they were instituted in Leviticus, um, they happened all throughout the temple period, through, through the kingship of David, and even afterwards. And so generations later, um, we find the prophet Isaiah observing that the continuous sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless. They were just, it was just legalism. People just did it. Um, but despite offering these sacrifices, the people of Israel still allowed for evil, and their hearts still remained far from God. So the original intention that God had for the purpose of these sacrifices as representing you know, surrender before God, um, it's, it started to deteriorate. And so Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king would come from the line of David to permanently deal with the problem of sin and death. And so I'm going to read this really long chapter. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I'm not going to explain it, but I do hope that it fills your mind with uh, ideas, uh, ideas of what these implications are for a coming savior. So Isaiah 53, who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hid their faces. He was despised, he was held, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our iniquities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, 
but he was wounded for our transgression, trust, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with affliction. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and all shall prolong his days through him and the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see, he shall find the satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make righteousness and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I, sh I will allot him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that was just a reading of Isaiah 53. Um, and like Isaiah, um, we realize that, you know, our practice, our, we, have, we essentially can't save ourselves. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Um, because no matter how many times we offer these sacrifices, ultimately um, our hearts become callous. And so it, it, it ultimately had to be God taking it upon himself to, to do the work, to become the sacrifice, to permanently deal with sin and death, um, because we couldn't do it. Um, and just like the Israelites, uh, we, we tend to become callous and we tend to forget the meaning behind why we do these things in the first place. So with that, um, I just want to conclude by saying, uh, I hope that this, it didn't explain everything, and I was intentional about that, but I do hope that it sparks your imagination to start thinking in the language of ritual, to start familiarizing yourself with the part of the book, part of the Bible that you may not want to <laughs> engage with. Um, but by doing so, uh, I hope that it brings greater meaning and knowledge about what's happening in the rest of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament and what's happening to Jesus. All right, so if Sam could come up. Even when Moses was writing a little bit the serpent's <laughs> But um, would you stand with me? In the ancient East, Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, and even East Asia, there is a con in, in human consciousness. There's this idea of wrath and punishment, or even moral guilt. Right? There's the idea of karma in. East Asia, there's strong idea of it making atonement or atoning for wrongdoing. But when you look at scripture, even before the Torah was constituted and even before Leviticus was written, 
When you look at the idea of Abraham being called out in the land of the Chaldeans in Ur in Genesis, there was already an institution of ritual and sacrifice. It's like, for us, it's like having an iPhone. You know, when I, if I say, take out your iPhone, and if you have a Samsung phone, don't take it out, it might explode. Just kidding. But it was very familiar in ancient Middle East about the idea of propitiation. The, the idea that you have to sacrifice an innocent to satisfy the wrath of the territory. Now, how did that consciousness become a thing in history? Well, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Now, we can't directly connect the timeline because we're not sure, and my whole book is about the evolution of human consciousness, is why is there this thing about propitiation and sacrifice? Because when God calls Abraham to that covenant, which becomes monotheism, he sacrifices pigeons, even before ritual sacrifice is written in Leviticus. Because ancient Middle East people understood covenant. It's all about covenant. Tell someone next to you a promise. And here it is. Here it is. I think the most important thing to understand about this ritual sacrifice is Abraham, before he accepts the covenant with God and leaves the land, he takes pigeons. And what they did in the ancient Middle East was they took the pigeons and they poured the blood out to the ground and make, they made a whole straight line, like eight pigeons. That's gross, right? We could probably get some around in Central Park or right out here. And they poured out all the blood and drew a line. And what God says to Abraham is, Abraham walks through the blood. Gross, right? Really cool, though. He walks through the blood, and then God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. But the most important foreshadowing is the promise is what? I what? I what? I will. Tell someone next to you, I will. I will. What God was saying to Abraham was, if I don't keep the promise, you can do this to me. It was Covenant was serious in ancient times. You had to give your life. And what, what is that? A foreshadowing of the cross, right? To keep the promise, to bless. To keep the promise, to save. To keep the promise, to heal. To keep the promise, to make you a great nation. The eschatological promise of scripture, the great city of God, is that there will be blood by his own son, the foreshadowing of Isaac, right? Of Jesus Christ. The ritual sacrifice leads to that poignant and powerful reality that in your sin, you will fail. The promise is you will fail, but God says, I will keep the promise. I will. So I don't know where you are today in your faith. You go, well, I'm struggling with these things. The covenant promise in Jesus is that he will carry you through. He will save you. He will heal you. And he will make you great through his blood. And even when you fail, he will not. That's the covenant. So today, will you lift your hands with me to the Lord as we look to the cross? And Paul preached about this before too, about the idea of the snakes 
in the desert and looking up the bronze snake to the Son of God being offered up. So today, I want you to lift your hands and remember, it's not your righteousness. It's not your holiness. It's not your faithfulness. It's not even your rightness. But it's his righteousness. And no wonder Christianity is the only religion where we stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, and sing. That is the only logical reason why we have to keep telling you to sit down and stand up. Stand up for the scripture. Stand up for the song. Lift your hands. Why? He deserves it. He deserves all our praise because he's the one that keeps the promise. So today, wherever your doubt is, wherever your darkness is, look to the cross. He is fulfilling his promise to Abraham even today. Let's make this our prayer today. Give him all your doubts as you lift your hands to the Lord today. Let him take your hand and walk you through the darkness, the doubt, and the pain. Father, we come before you this afternoon right now. The distinctiveness of the gospel message is good news because it was so inferior sacrificing animals every year after year for millennia. What we can do It's so pathetic to make it right. So no wonder the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God himself through kenosis destroys the altar once and for all by giving his own life. That's why we call him the Lamb of God who takes the sin 
of the world. And when a lamb is sacrificed, it makes no noise. It just cries in silence. So as we close today, there are two applications I want you to think about as you look upon the cross. In America, in American Christianity, there is no fear of God. It's like, God's my friend. High five. You know, God, oh, God understands. We make very light of sin. And so if we make light of sin, what we make, we minimize the cross, right? Oh, God will forgive me for that. And there's a form of entitlement. Now, shame is different from guilt. Guilt is needed. You got to remember, if you take sin lightly, you take the cross lightly. But then there's the reverse of, of moral people, religious people who grew up in the church. That This is me. I struggle the opposite. If I do anything little, I go, no, my sin is so great. Even God can't forgive me. Then I make my sin so big and make the cross small. Those two errors are rampant. Whether licentiousness or whether moralism, the cross needs to destroy both. Because in the end of the day, it's not about a form of narcissism where I focus on myself, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, or make light of the cross. It's about glorifying Jesus, the one who keeps the promise. Will you pray today as we close right now that the cross would bring the fear of God and the all of God and the majesty of the heart of Jesus into your life. I'll never be too small. And Paul tells us in the language of Leviticus that when we sin over and over again, we crucify him again and dishonor the one who saves. Will you bow heads for the benediction today? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and that fellowship that he purchased by pouring out his blood and keeping the promise forever seal our fellowship in him. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. May you go in peace. Hi, everyone. Happy Sunday. My name is Ash Ketchum. Just kidding. It's me, Haley. Um, and I'm a member here at 180 Church, and I'll be sharing some community news with you today. First off, let's talk about how we can give. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we ask that you continue to keep God in the, at the center of your finances and to tithe faithfully, which you can do using Zelle, Venmo, and PayPal. If you're a visitor here with us today, we welcome you to our service and there's no financial obligation to give. 
but if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so with the methods above. Our next announcement is about all the ways you can connect with God and others in our community. We have our Bible reading group, 180BRG. You can join us at any time to read the Bible. Feel free to follow along and feed your soul with the Word of God. We also have a number of other ways we can stay connected, including our church's Facebook page, Dr. Sammy's Twitter page, and our YouTube page. We are live every Sunday for service through YouTube, so you can always watch this, watch and re-watch the sermon and stay connected with us. Next, we have resources. We have some powerful resources that are available for you to purchase at the cafe to help us connect with God daily. A Holy Haunting, written by Dr. Sammy, is a great resource to help others connect with God, wherever they may be in their faith journey. And we just got word that A Holy Haunting will be going to ministry centers on every Ivy League campus, plus Stanford, with Dr. Sammy's partnership with the Christian Union in tandem with a discussion of a speaking tour on all nine campuses. So this is truly amazing, and we're really hoping to reach lots of people and draw them closer to have a relationship with God and experience God's love. So can you please keep this in prayer? For God's hand of blessing and favor in all that our Father is doing with the Christian Union, and that a holy haunting will help catalyze mission on campus, and that, that many will join God's family. So let's continue to pray for your family and friends with the gospel and join God on mission. Now, while you're at the cafe, you can also pick up some 180 merch. It is hoodie season now, and it's a perfect time to pick up your 180 sweater or top to hug you in all the right ways. There's a collection of sweatshirts to keep you warm and cozy, and all purchases are based on an honor system and can be purchased the same ways that I mentioned before. Next, we have small groups. Small groups are a great way to connect with others in our community and go deeper into the message. We have various groups for different stages. Please see the screen for the times and places. Some meet on Zoom or like through the, the phone, like the video chatting, and some meet in person. So if you need any additional info, please speak to any of the greeters in 180 shirts or hoodies. If you need or want prayer, we invite you to email us at 180, uh, sorry, at prayer at 180church.tv. There will be a team praying for you on the other end and everything is confidential. We encourage you to reach out and ask for prayer. Finally, we are looking for volunteers to help serve in many different areas in our community. First, we have the cafe bookstore. Come help wake people up both literally and spiritually. We have Sunday school. Come help our littlest members get to know the love of Jesus. And then we have, we need techies. Come help us build really cool stuff online. And then greeters, come help all feel welcome and be the friendly faces of our community. So if you're interested, please see any one of our greeters in 180 hoodies or anyone in the cafe and they will help you get connected. Finally, we're still looking for your support to help raise money for the annual 180 care package event. 180 Fellowship throws this event every year and they create care packages for students at NYU so they can experience the love of Christ. We are looking to raise $2,000 to help cover the costs and we have an anonymous donor who will match up to a thousand in donations. We have partnered with three businesses and collaborated with over 10 Christian clubs and ministries. Please keep this event in prayer 
that these students will feel seen and cared for. If you'd like to support, you can with the methods I mentioned before. So those are all of our announcements today.